Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter five. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. And obedience would bring redemption to the world through the new Adam, the final Adam, Jesus Christ. First Adam was immortal and he chose death. But the final Adam was made human. He was made, he submitted himself in great humbleness to become man, to become mortal. And then he chose to rise from death as John 10, 18 reminds us. Adam was the type, Jesus is the anti-type. The anti-type is always greater than the type. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ was the new and final Adam. What was lost through Adam was redeemed through Jesus. So St. Paul, my friends, was the first one to introduce typology to us. Now, many wondered if there's a new Adam, was there a new Eve? Paul didn't address that in this letter, but many other early scholars thought the same question. Is there a new Eve? And yes, my friends, there is. St. Justin Martyr, as early as the second century, started writing for Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her, that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and by the power of the highest would overshadow her. Wherefore also the holy thing begotten of her is the son of man. And she replied, be it done unto me according to your word. Saint Irenaeus of Leon in the second century wrote more. It was not that the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. For what the Virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the Virgin Mary set free through faith. The knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. She is the untire of knots. This is one of Pope Francis's favorite images of Mary, Mary, Our Lady, the entire of knots. Tertullian wrote about it in the second and third century. I won't read all of it. St. Gregory, the wonder worker in this third century, made the connection of Mary, the new Eve. So did St. Jerome in the fourth century, writing death came through Eve, life came through Mary. St. Ephraim, one of my favorites in the fourth century, has an eloquent sermon about this, that Mary is the new Eve, as did Augustine, St. Augustine in the fourth and fifth century. Our Lord was not adverse to males, for he took the form of a male, nor to females, for of a female he was born. Besides, there's a great mystery here, that just as death comes through a woman, life is born to us through a woman, that the devil defeated would be tormented by each nature, feminine and masculine, as he had taken delight in the defection of both. So we see a typology of Adam and Jesus and Eve and Mary. A parallel also could be found between Father Abraham and Mother Mary. For instance, in Romans 4, we read, in hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your descendants be. Well, Mary, as Abraham is Father Abraham, Mary is Mother Mary. 
and in hope, we could just change the name and pronoun and listen to it this way. In hope, Mary believed against hope that she should become the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God. Both Father Abraham and Mother Mary were both promised a supernatural son of promise. It goes on, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Both of them, in fact, you'll remember, laughed. They laughed when God said they would have a son, and God told them to name your child laughter. Think of it with Mary. Mary did not weaken in faith when she conceived in her own body, which was young and virginal. She knew she had not and did not intend to know a man in that way. Yet Mary conceived a supernatural promise. No distress made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised. Same could be said for Mary. No distrust made Mary waver concerning the promise of God, but she grew strong in her faith and she gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Mary, who is a daughter of Abraham, will be the new Eve, the mother of all the truly alive. And this faith that both Mary and Abraham Abraham had will be for all of us. Abraham is the human father of our faith. Mary is the human mother of all the truly alive. That is why with his, Abram's faith, he was able to be reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words that was reckoned to him were not written just for Abram, but for us too. It'll be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So my friends, we see great hope in these passages of Paul between chapter four and chapter five. Christ being called the second Adam by the apostle Paul with that blood dripping down on the skull of Adam under the cross, that precious blood that would uncurse Adam's cursed ground and bring Adam and all humanity, all who believe back into eternal life with the Trinity. Nothing could do that but the blood of Jesus. Now, when he's in the tomb and the tomb is sealed, the stone is put before it and everyone thinks it's over and they all leave. Jesus is very busy on Holy Saturday. When he rises in the tomb, he goes and harrows Hades. It's in 1 Peter 3 that after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, those who are waiting for a savior in a holding place. Only Jesus could do this. He's the only one who saved. All men and all women need and still need a savior. And you see Jesus, the last two he's pulling out from that holding place of Hades, that place of the dead, are Adam and Eve. And he's pulling Adam out last and he's pulling him out by the wrist because there's absolutely nothing Adam can do. Adam can't grab on. He has to be saved by Jesus pulling him from the mire. Nothing but the blood of Jesus would open the gates of death. And Jesus, that precious blood of Jesus in John 6, he tells us to eat it and drink it. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So 50 days later, and, and 50 is Jubilee to the Jews. Every Jew knows 50 means Jubilee and that means all your debts are forgiven on a Jubilee year. 50 days later, 120 are gathered in the upper room and a new bride, the new bride, this widow Israel, this widow bride, the Jewish people in Jerusalem for Pentecost, 
become a new universal bride, starting with their own languages? How is it that each of us here in our own native language, they were from all over the world. They had all descended, all these Jews, on Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they can all hear in their own native dialect. What is going on? They're perplexed. What does this mean? Well, this is way broader than just the universal Jews that were there that day on Pentecost. God had a way bigger plan. This is going to be a forever husband, Jesus Christ, a new bridegroom for all people, all men, all women, all children, Gentile or Jew, slaves or free, woman or man, child or adult, no more. It didn't matter. All will be swept up into the love of the new covenant marriage. This new wedding gift that God has poured out is love itself, the perfection of the Father and Son's love in another distinct person of the most holy trinity that has spirated forth called the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love and life, spirating as a uniquely distinct person of God, a third person of the trinity being revealed to them, the Holy Spirit of love which convicts hearts to repent. And their hearts were cut to the quick. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the new covenant wedding gift for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, at that moment, Abram's family just got exponentially bigger, like all the stars in the sky and all the sand on the seashore. The promises for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You got to repent, you got to believe, and you got to be baptized. And then you'll be filled with the new wedding gift, the gift of love. And then you can come, come to the love feast, illuminated by the Holy Spirit with knowledge and understanding. Come to the love feast, the new covenant meal. Because remember what Jesus told us, unless, unless Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. Peter must have known that Jesus' words had eternal life. He knew it. He knew it then. I don't understand it, Lord. They're all leaving you, but I won't leave you. I know you have the words of life. I don't understand, but now with the power of the Holy Spirit alive in me, Peter's starting to understand. I know, I get it. It's a new covenant. It's a covenant of his body and his blood. And he wants us to participate in the divine life of love once again, just like in the Old Testament, where we went up, Moses went up with Aaron and Nabdab and Abihu and the 70 elders, and they saw God and they ate with him and they drank with him. They had a covenant meal together between parties. And you'll see in the catacombs, if you go to Rome, you'll see the early Christians sharing this new covenant love feast. And the love feast was mass. It was the early masses that the Christ followers called the love feast. God is love and love is God and love is infinite. And when love, God, banished Adam and Eve, they were expelled from partaking in the divine love of the Trinity. They knew the Father well. They spoke with him face to face in the cool of the garden. But in the midst of the garden, Jesus was hidden. He was the tree of life all along. And the Holy Spirit was hidden. He was the river of life all along that watered the tree of life and flowed out to every ordinal direction of the universe. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were participating in the divine life of love, that hidden life of the Trinity. That is the paradise that we are all hoping to get back to. But it's going to take faith 
It's going to take hope and it's going to take love to get back. And Paul knows these three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love because that's God. Faith will help get you back. Hope, we hope it's an eschatological virtue, but we're trying to get back to love itself, the heart of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit would illuminate these connections for the apostles. And day by day in Acts 2, they attended temple together and they were breaking breads in their home, celebrating mass, celebrating the love feast. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. They eventually figured out that foot washing that Jesus talked about in John 13 was actually confession. Jesus, once you have been bathed with the baptismal washing, you still need foot washing regularly. These gifts of the Holy Spirit are blowing their mind. They're illuminating everything. Seven gifts of the Holy Spirit revealed the seven sacraments of the universal church. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are again confirmed, all of them on a person at confirmation. Mass is going to be the perpetual remembrance of the once for all sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. But participants are actually going to participate in that same perpetual sacrifice once for all now in an unbloodied way. Since it was only the precious blood of Jesus that would ransom us, set us free from the ties of sin and death. And the start of participating in the divine nature, once again, was actually mass, going to the love feast. You are what you eat, eating Jesus's flesh. You are what you drink, drinking Jesus's blood. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. How will we keep our bodily temples of God holy? When you were baptized, your sins were totally forgiven. Have you ever sinned again since your baptism? It's the Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts of sin. Now, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know when it's time to go get a good foot washing. What do I mean? It was on the night he was betrayed, on the night of the Last Supper in John 13, Jesus said to Simon Peter, uh, he came to Simon and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not know now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. This foot washing is a way to participate with Jesus. If you don't submit to foot washing, you have no part with Jesus. What is that? Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you do not, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, then not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Bathing the body is baptism. Foot washing is confession. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. This was on the night of the institution of the new priesthood. There's a typology, bathing the whole body is baptism, cleaning the feet is reconciliation through a new priesthood. A new priesthood was born on Holy Thursday, the night of the foot washing, right before the Last Supper, the love feast. Confession before communion. Have a holy, pure temple before the Lord comes into your body to commune with you in his flesh and blood. On the eve of the resurrection of Jesus, the doors were locked shut. 
for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood with those priests, with those new priests, those 10 that were there. Judas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. Peace be with you, he said. He showed his hands in his side. They were glad. He said, peace be with you again. He's offering forgiveness, shalom, deepest peace. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you to these 10. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, their own private Pentecost. He breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. Then the risen Lord, first thing he wants to tell them is if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. A new priesthood is born. They are given the authority by the risen God to forgive sin. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Every Holy Thursday, the church celebrates the institution of a new priesthood and a new covenant last supper in his blood on Holy Thursday. And the shalom peace that will come through a new priesthood of Jesus Christ. And not only does the Pope wash feet by hearing confessions, he too gets his own feet washed and he gets them washed often, at least every two weeks. He models for sinners because he says, I too am a sinner. And he does it publicly in front of the world. And this was shocking. I remember NBC News covering this in 214, that the Pope breaks protocol and goes to confession in public. He was the first Pope to do this. Other Popes went in the privacy of their own chambers, but he went in front of the world. The results of justification in Romans 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. No, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. More than that, we rejoice, friends, in our suffering. Are you going through hard times right now? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? We know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if God's love has been poured into my heart, then what do I want to do with it? What do you want to do with it? We are impelled to give God's love away in acts of charity, in acts of love, because love has legs. Just like faith has legs, love has legs. Simple acts of love. Now, while we were yet helpless at the right time, God died for the ungodly. Why one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. Beloved, this reminded me so much of, of John, one of John's, as he was getting older, 1 John 4, when he said, Beloved, love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. 
He who does not love does not know God because God is love. For this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love has legs. No man has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's what they'd say in the Roman Empire. Look at the Christians. See how they love one another. In that Roman Empire, I want to remind you how Greece was the world power before Rome. Greece fell to the Romans in 146 BC. And as a culture... I'm not talking about a political force, but as a culture, the Greek civilization lasted longer still, right to the end of the ancient world. The Greek civilization became the founding culture of Western civilization. The world was completely Hellenized, we call it, and the scholars would call it a Greco-Roman world, Greek art the bronze sculptures, Greek law, their inheritance laws, all their laws, Greek education, Plato's academy. Remember Plato. He died 348 years before Christ, but he was a philosopher in Athens, Greece during the classical period. He founded the Platonic, uh, the Platonist school of thought. His academy was the first institution of higher learning in the entire Western world. And Plato was the first to discuss the cardinal virtues in his writing called The Republic. It was published around 375 BC. It was his best known work, very influential in the world of philosophy and political theory, both intellectually and historically. In that dialogue of the Republic, Socrates, who is Plato's teacher, talks with various Athenians and foreigners about the meaning of justice and whether the just man is happier than the unjust man. Plato names four cardinal virtues. He's the first to name them. Cardinal comes from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. All other virtues will hinge on these four. And remember, Plato didn't have the revelation that the Jews had, but he reasoned this. And he reasoned that the four cardinal virtues were prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And these became known throughout the Hellenized world, these four cardinal virtues. And Plato taught that the four cardinal virtues could be practiced by anyone. And thus they represented the foundation of natural morality. Plato's most famous student was Aristotle. And Plato's disciple Aristotle continued to influence the Hellenized world with his philosophy learned from Plato at the search for wisdom. And in the Raphael rooms in the Vatican, we see that wonderful painting by Raphael of the School of Athens. And front and center are Plato and Aristotle. There they are, teacher and student. And on the ceiling in that room are the four virtues that Plato named. And three virtues and one on the ceiling. And the ceiling is justice. It's a great, beautiful medallion. Fortitude is there. Prudence is there with two faces, a young feminine face looking in a mirror, an allegory of wisdom of the knowledge of the present, and then the backward face of an old man peering into the past for sound judgment predicated on experience. That's what prudence is. And temperance, you notice temperance, they're all women. She holds the bridle of a restraint, the bridle in her hand to restrain the tongue and to be temperate. Justice on the ceiling holds scales and a sword. The more prominent position of justice up on the ceiling was emphasized by Plato. It's his fourth virtue, and he 
introduced justice to ensure that the other three cardinal virtues would exist in harmony. All other virtues hinge on these four for Plato, prudence, fortitude, temperance, and justice, and you'll see them all over the Roman and Greek empire. Plato taught anyone could practice these. They were the foundation of natural morality, and the just man would be happier than the unjust man. And if you repeatedly worked at it as a human, these four cardinal virtues of practice could become habit. Now, St. Paul's going to write about three other virtues. They are known as the theological virtues. They are faith, hope, and charity. These virtues are gifts. They are gifts from God, faith, hope, and love. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Love of God poured out into our temples. God's love has been poured into our hearts, and what do we want to do with it? Give it away. We're impelled to give God's love in acts of charity because love has legs. These are gifts from God. Paul first uses them with the Thessalonians. It's his oldest letter, 50 AD. He was talking about works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness in hope, put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. He told the Corinthians, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. It's the only everlasting one because love is God. You need faith to get back to God. You need hope that he exists and you can get back to him, but when you get to heaven, into the beatific vision, you're into the heart of love itself. So tonight in Romans 5, 57 AD, Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access to grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. The three theological virtues are gifts from God. And Catechism 1812 says the human virtues are rooted in the theological virtues, which adapt man's faculties for participation in the divine nature, for the theological virtues relate directly to God. Faith, hope, and love relate directly to God. They dispose Christians to live in a relationship with the Holy Trinity. They have the one and triune God for their origin, their motive, and their object. Faith, hope, and love. Origin in God. Motive in God. And object in God. Now, this October is dedicated to the most holy rosary. It always is. Our Lady of the Rosary is celebrated on October 7th. When we pray our rosary, the first three beads after the Our Father, we ask for an increase in the three theological virtues. The gift of faith. Lord, increase my faith. The gift of hope. Lord, increase my hope. And the gift of love, charity. Lord, increase my love. Help me love better. They all, faith, hope, and love, have the one and triune God for their origin, their motive, and their objective. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the virtue of hope tonight and how much we need hope right now in our world. And we hope, we hope to one day be with you in the heart of love itself. Thank you for the gifts of faith. Thank you for the gift of hope. 
and thank you mostly for the gift of love, which is you and the way you cherish us and the way you want us to participate in your life, in your own blessed life of the Trinity. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter five, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.